Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. Crises often accelerate trends in our civilization, for better or for worse. Within living memory, the Second World War began in a world powered primarily by horses and ended in the age of jet travel. The global pandemic, which burst upon an unprepared world from Wuhan, China, in early 2020, exposed serious problems with our archaic American healthcare system. It also accelerated the proliferation of sorely needed innovation. In today's episode, we hear from Dr. Mahek Shaw, a healthcare executive, physician entrepreneur, former investment banker, and leading authority on value-based care. For the past 15 years, Dr. Shaw led value-based care engagements and taught at Harvard Business School, as well as advised global health systems, the Veterans Administration, Department of Defense, and World Economic Forum. His mission to redesign, reimagine, and rehumanize healthcare is driven by what he coined as the ABCDs of healthcare, focused on health versus sickness. Today, Dr. Shaw shares insight into the impact of COVID-19 on these efforts and how the lessons learned may lead to a better future for healthcare. If a system was designed to really focus around health and promote health and well-being, both physical health but also mental health, or what I call brain health, then I think long-term you have a healthcare sector that is more of a system and has a true north that is really around what people desire. And that is one around optimizing your health with a incentive to make decisions that lead to your health and well-being versus just being reactive and treating your sickness. Okay, welcome back to Healthcare Americana. For all you loyal listeners, this is Adam Habig sitting in again for Christopher Habig. And today I have the privilege of uh, interviewing Dr. Mahek Shaw. Dr. Shaw has an incredibly intriguing background, uh, which I'll let him tell you about briefly. But uh, really, it provides a, a, he provides a unique perspective and a synthesis of both the, um, uh, the medical world as well as experience in, in finance and, and that I think has contributed to his, really his, his experience and his, his uh, topical uh, expertise in this field. Dr. Shaw, thank you for being with us today. Uh, could you give us a little bit about your background and, and uh, the things that really intrigue you and where you focus in healthcare? Certainly, Adam. Thank you for having me and it's a pleasure to be, be here on your, on your podcast uh, I've spent my career at the intersection, really, of business, healthcare, and technology. And as you articulated, I started my career in finance at Citi and Morgan Stanley, and really that allowed me to really look at the the world holistically. And within the financial markets, you get to understand how uh, the flow of money works, the flow of people uh, that make decisions, as well as how various changes in in financing or markets really affects uh, other industries, both the industry that you're working in, uh, but also um, cousin or sister industries based on financial markets. And as, as yourself has been in a career in finance before law school, uh, you can relate to that 
that market movement. And I think we're seeing the same thing in healthcare delivery. Since I went to medical school, we've implemented the Affordable Care Act, uh, which allowed for access. Um, and though affordable is in the title of the act, it didn't really move the needle as much as we could on affordability. And I think changes in business models, a move from volume to value, which I've been at the forefront of, and now this more of a consumer-driven, value-driven uh, healthcare uh, has really accelerated the needle uh, and movement. And I think COVID has really made 10 years of progress in 10 weeks. And I'm optimistic and hopeful that that acceleration will continue. That, that is fascinating. And I, uh, you know, as, in your work as um, a physician executive and, and a strategic advisor to, to Fortune 500 companies, um, your focus on value-driven care, uh, you mentioned some of that cross-pollination between other industries and, and, and taking the, those best practices and those unique perspectives and applying those to medicine. I, I know that you've mentioned our system shouldn't really be called healthcare. It resembles more of a sick care system. Can you opine on that a bit and then, and then relate that back to your notion of, of COVID having exposed that within our system? I'm, I'm happy to, Adam. I think that, you know, we've set up for the last century or so a healthcare system with the best of intentions. And, you know, we have, at least in the U.S., many would argue some of the most sophisticated uh, therapeutics when it comes to oncology treatment, as well as surgical interventions that uh, take place in the world. Uh, however, a lot of these interventions and therapeutics are often focused on what I call the downstream of healthcare delivery. When you're sick and when you're really sick, the system is very is set up to where you can get, you know, with some some work, uh, access to some of the best therapeutics around. And that is significant and helpful in curing your, your cancer or fixing a part of the body that needs fixing. Uh, however, much of the health of not only this nation, but in particularly globally, is often influenced um, by the, the decisions and things that are sort of uh, so in some would argue social uh, determinants of health, but I often argue it's based on decisions that are sort of outside the formal healthcare delivery system that has been set up. And, and that is around food access, nutrition, fitness, understanding of how that relates to your health. And this notion that if you get sick, the best thing to do is to take a, a pill for it or, or have a surgical intervention. And while that is true in many cases, for the vast majority of people that, quote unquote, cost the system exorbitant amounts of dollars, if a system was designed to really focus around health and promote health and well-being, both physical health, but also mental health, or what I call brain health, then I think long-term you have a healthcare sector that is more of a system and has a true north that is really around what people desire. And that is one around optimizing your health with a incentive to make decisions that lead to your health and well-being versus just being reactive and treating your sickness. Makes sense. Uh, uh, to use an analogy for a layman like myself, 
it, it sounds like we've uh, developed and invested in a, a very expensive and very effective fire department when perhaps we need to stop setting so many fires in the first place rather than just putting them out after the fact. Um, but it's great to have that fire department, Doc. No doubt about that. What, what people respond to incentives, though, and you mentioned, you know, how can we shift that paradigm where the emphasis and perhaps the incentives drive better, call it personal decision-making or better perspectives in terms of um, those, those decisions that are made in everyday life that affect that downstream consumption of care. How do you flip the script so that the emphasis is not simply on looking for the pill or the fix or the, um, you know, the remedy after the fact? Because I believe that's what you're saying we, we need to do to, to have something that resembles more of a, a healthcare system that encourages the maintenance of health and not the treatment of sickness. Absolutely. And I think incentives fundamentally drive everything in any sector uh, and that is what has led to some of the changes we're seeing now with the coronavirus and COVID based on certain rules and regulations. And I think that the many stakeholders that are within the healthcare sector, uh, consumers uh, or patients, uh, providers and doctors and health systems, as well as insurance companies and um, uh, that uh, and then employers, all are driven by incentives. And if you can change those incentives to overall benefit as many people as you can uh, to deliver value like we do in every other part of the economy, I think you can make a difference in having a less costly healthcare system or keep the cost the same but just get better use and, and value out of it to meet the needs of, of our citizens as well as um, our stakeholders. Because I think everyone can win when you align the incentives. And I think uh, in order to do that, we've seen firsthand with the coronavirus when we've set up systems or incentives in play where um, prevented physicians from doing telehealth visits across state lines. You know, they were limited to their state that they were licensed in. But then when CMO, uh, Medicare, and Medicaid uh, lowered those walls and those barriers, you saw a surge in telehealth, uh, both on the provider side, but also on the consumer side, where all of a sudden people that wanted to access an expert across the country uh, now could do so via telehealth. They found a more convenient as well as safer way to access their physician um, or even nurse practitioner by breaking down that barrier and by re-incentivizing a provider to allow them to get paid for that visit, no matter where it was in the U.S. You found an increase in utilization of that service as well as an increase in satisfaction over getting care at the right time at the right place uh, and an overall sort of general building of trust across the sacred bond that I was trained on between patient and provider that I've, I feel like in the last 10 to 15 years of medicine may have been reduced a little bit because of 
the the quick visits that were occurring um, between uh, the doctor and the patient, as well as sort of the frustration of just getting to that point, what many refer to as navigating the healthcare system uh, where there is no playbook. And I think that by, by changing the incentives to make things more accessible and affordable, but also more convenient, you're moving the system forward for everyone and you're benefiting everyone by breaking down some of these barriers, which frankly, in my view, are just ridiculous and don't need to come back up even after the pandemic. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, it, uh, sometimes it, uh, it takes something that is extreme in its, and, and sudden and unexpected like this to highlight some of those barriers and, and really drive the action to, to shatter them. And I, and, and I concur with you that ideally we don't see those re-erected following um, the demise of the, the hoped for, the longed for demise of, of the COVID pandemic. But one thing that the fascinating perspective, and, and uh, you talk about incentives and how to change those. And I think most people, you think incentives and you think financial incentives because that's a natural um, correlation, but incentives don't always have to be financial. And, and something you mentioned, the, the restoration of that bond, that, that sacred relationship between a patient and a physician that has been so jeopardized. Uh, I, I don't think on purpose. I, I think it's, it's just a, 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 a byproduct of the system as it's grown and, and, and morphed over the last few decades um, to something that is probably unrecognizable to physicians who practiced half a century ago. Uh, today. But the restoration of that relationship coinciding with, uh, you mentioned, destroying or, or eliminating those barriers to access and affordability. Uh, it seems like this is a recipe for what healthcare should be. And I know you've got a, a quote, which is fabulous, that it should be as simple as learning your ABCs. Can you expand on that for us? Yeah, no, I'm happy to. I think that healthcare, on one hand, many would, would suggest that we just totally scrap the system that exists, this legacy system that has been sort of built on a, a very vulnerable foundation, a shaky foundation. And this is what COVID, I think, exposed for many people across the industry. And while we can't do that because every day and every second we need to take care of, of, of people and meet their needs, we can start to do things that really align with the overall uh, incentives of keeping a healthy society and a productive one. And I think that telehealth was a good start and I hope it continues. But I think fundamentally, healthcare should be simplified in many ways. There's a lot of sort of glut in the middle that take up both human capital as well as adds to the costs of delivering care and adds no value to the outcome or contribute, contribute to the outcome. If anything, it just frustrates stakeholders. With a telehealth visit between a provider and, and a consumer, you know, you eliminate call into a hospital and schedule an appointment. But I think that if you can simplify the system, you also reduce the total cost of care in many scenarios in treating various conditions and various and, uh, areas of, of care delivery. But I think it also allows for innovation and technology to really contribute the full value that it can, right? If you take out some of these 
um, sometimes are middle um, middle people uh, between between the uh, consumer and provider, but also you take out some of the things that are adding to the expense or the prices of everything from drugs to devices to uh, you know facilities. And I think that when we step back and try to understand what is the right thing to do in the right way and in the right location of care, then you, you know, getting back to the ABCs and simplifying it, you begin to see opportunities of, of innovation and, and opportunities of transformation because people are frankly just fed up. They're sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know, and, um, when complexity comes up to the uh, extent of navigating a healthcare system, that can in some cases lead to the detriment of some, someone's health. And it's not any fault of their own in that they didn't try to access the healthcare system, but they were just overwhelmed by the complexity or were waiting on uh, authorization for a medicine that their physician prescribed. And there, there is a better way to do it. And there are some of the best companies in the world are, are building those things, building those tools and, and also changing the business model to allow for this simplification of care to where it really meets the needs of the, of the person and the groups of people, but also produces some of the best outcomes uh, in the same environment. Fascinating. And, and I wonder if it could be that simple. I, I think it was Da Vinci said, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. But to your point, the, the notion of stripping away the barriers that, that cause the system to, to react and, and to look the way that it does today, uh, when you have doctors who are necessarily confined, uh, we call it you know, uh, practice by billing code, where you've got a set parameter of, of tools in your toolbox, and no matter what you got, you got to use a hammer because it's got to be a nail in order to get paid on it. Um, that's not the recipe for an efficient system. And one, you mentioned telehealth, you know, why has it taken this long for something that was a very obvious innovation technology that has existed, uh, for years and years now in terms of video chats, why has it taken this long in a, in a global pandemic for that type of a breakthrough to actually occur to, to clear away the dead wood and the red tape that, that really, get in the way of those types of innovations emerging? That, that's a fundamental question that strikes at the heart of what's inefficient about our system today. And I know one thing near and dear to our hearts um, at Freedom HealthWorks and, and as advocates of a, a wide open, uh, robust marketplace of new ideas and new innovations within healthcare is this notion that those innovations need to come to the forefront much quicker. It can't, it can't take two decades for something like that to emerge uh, to start helping people who, who could use those tools. So, what do you think it is that that is still standing in the way? Is it is it um, archaic regulation? Is it the notion that I mentioned, the practice by billing code that we try to route so much of our of our healthcare through this financial instrument called health insurance uh, that it contorts the way that it's delivered and drives the cost of it? Clearly, that's one of my uh, opinions here, doctor, but in your, in your, in your uh, understanding, what, what could we do and uh, what could, what changes might we make to alleviate some of these, these issues? No, I, I, 
totally agree with that, that it's taken too long for telehealth to gain mainstream adoption. And it shouldn't take a global pandemic to really have change and innovation in our system and sector. Uh, so we can learn from this by stepping back uh, when the time, as, the, as this pandemic uh, gets under, under control and really say, what else do we need to change about our healthcare system uh, to make it better long-term and to make it more affordable and accessible for everyone? Because uh, I believe healthcare is a right. I, I believe you do too, and so does your uh, your brother uh, as well, and and many of the listeners at, at Freedom Health Works. Um, and so I think that to really see change and um, eliminate some of these barriers, I think some of this, to your question, some of the resistance to more adoption of telehealth was the regulatory barriers, the state-by-state -state boundaries that prevented people from seeking care in other locations, uh, experts in other locations, as well as the, the providers weren't necessarily getting uh, reimbursed or uh, at parity with an in-person visit as they would have on a telehealth visit, even if they were sort of in the same state and could, could seek that option. And until you, you know, goes back to incentives until you have equal uh, sort of payment for that, you won't see providers necessarily converting a good portion of their, their services via tele, or even just being able to have the opportunity to say, okay, of my, my panel, of my, my community, you know, what is the best way for me to reach out and, and care for these uh, for my my panel and my group of patients that I care for? And until you make it goes back to the ABCs until you make it affordable and accessible for everyone involved. But until you make it convenient and pay on the pay for that convenience, uh, you won't see that the system changing as quick as it has. Um, and I think that is. That plus the fact that everything was tied to your employer, um, much of you know much of healthcare is tied to your employer, and I think that's becoming called into question with our our uptick in unemployment um, with as a result of the pandemic, and and those are big questions, and so we may not be able to answer them all within the uh, this podcast. Um, we can make an attempt to tackle them in the next one, but. Um, I think by by having forward-thinking organizations and forward-thinking providers, forward-thinking health systems, and forward-thinking entrepreneurs that really want to build technology and solutions to address some of these needs and to take advantage of the acceleration of change, I think then we can begin to create a more a sustainable but also a more delightful healthcare experience for everyone involved. And that's whether you're a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a nurse, or you're a, a consumer of care and, and just seeking the, the best, best out there. Yeah. Couldn't agree more with, with what you said. The, the one I, I do have to go back um, and this is, this could be semantics doctor, but the uh, certainly agree that healthcare should be uh, affordable, accessible and high quality. Um, I, I might hesitate to call it a right today just because uh, I think the calling something a right implies that uh, an individual is entitled to that 
um, without cost uh, simply for drawing breath. And I, I don't believe that healthcare can be shoehorned into that category because it does require skilled personnel to deliver the healthcare. So, but I, I do concur with you that it, it should be affordable, accessible, and high quality. And, and to that point, access is something that I know you focused on and I, I find is, is a fascinating um, aspect of this because access to me means a couple things. Uh, is there an available uh, mechanism to procure the care, meaning is there an available physician available to treat you when you, when you need that treatment? And can you afford that treatment? Nobody, nobody is, is deluded into thinking that healthcare can ever be free, but it should be affordable for the average person, much like it has been throughout history. Uh, I wonder if, if that notion of access is, um, is that, do you think that's understood consistently across the board? Because um, in, our wor- in our work with Freedom HealthWorks and, and attempting to uh, you know, accelerate the spread of direct care and, and, and as an alternative to the system that, that is much maligned that you described has all these barriers, in our notion to, in our, our, our attempts to spread direct care, we're looking at this as a, a vastly expanded um, access for the average individual to both get the care when they need it and get it at an affordable price. Um, is that, from your perspective, is that your understanding of access? And you think that's um, the understanding throughout, I guess, the movement to try to improve healthcare? Yeah, I think that access to me is when you are seeking the services of experts. And that can be something along the lines of clinical in, in orientation uh, to where you need to seek a, a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Um, or, it's, or it's something sort of within what I consider the realm of health, so nutrition, fitness, etc. I think there should be limited barriers to be able to access some of those expertise. And thankfully, you know, with the, the, the internet and being connected, we have, uh, we have that optionality more so than, than say, 30 years ago. Um, but I also think that if someone is seeking a particular service, there, sh- there should be limited constraint on them trying to access that expertise in that service. And so one example I will give you is in in Boston, where we have the highest per capita group of physicians in the country. On average, it takes, these, these are, you know, pre-COVID uh, times. And so I don't know what they are currently in current times, but it took on average around 21 or 24 days to see a primary care physician. And that's when you're insured and you have, you know, employer-based insurance or you've purchased it on the exchange or whatever. And, you know, for many people, that is too long. And it's something that they need to know within a day or two. You know, do I need to go in or do I need to seek a higher level of expertise or do I not? You know, if you're a parent uh, with a child and the ch- your child is ill, do I... Um, it's, it's sort of what I call the reassurance check. Do I need to, you know, go in or do I not? Can I, can I try to make an attempt at home? Um, and, and so, you know, with telehealth has, has reduced that amount of time a little bit. 
but the fact that in a in a in a region of the country where we have the highest per capita group of physicians, it still takes twenty four to twenty one day, twenty one to twenty four days to seek uh, an appointment. That to me is just that is not um, that is not a good system, and and I think also. Uh, you know, so that will that is changing, and that should be changed. And I think another example I can share is this morning I had a close friend in Texas. He's a chef, and you know, because of many people in the restaurant industry, he doesn't have classic health insurance through his employer, or maybe he's a sort of more of a freelance independent contracting chef. I'm not sure, but. So he said he had some some symptoms and some pain and so forth and what you know he had a fever and what should he do? And I said, well, I have a good friend, someone you've had on your podcast, Dr. Avi Barr. He's got a telehealth service, and you know he does intensive care as well as sleep medicine as a specialty. Um, but try and see if you can get an appointment with him relatively quickly, and he'll give, be able to kind of give you some guidance as to what you need to do. And you could probably see him very quickly. And that is access, you know. And then I got a response within an hour that he was able to book an appointment with uh, Dr. Barr. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. And, and But I know him and I trust him. And I think that for my friend, it was about getting a quick access to, a, to an expert who can then provide guidance. And we're also on the provider side, you know, work with, with my, uh, my friend who reached out you know, on, on sort of the payment system, you know, whether that's whatever the, the fees are, um, but it would be probably a smoother, more convenient experience for him to at least start that as a starting point through a televisit versus him driving to an urgent care, waiting, and maybe getting some answers um, that he or may or may not be satisfied with. Uh, and so that to me is sort of improved access, uh, immediate access. So then my friend who's in who needs some some guidance on his health can make an informed decision as to what to do next because he he qualified his request or his question to me with i don't want to go into the hospital because in texas the current covid cases are are out of control and so he was worried about getting uh, being at risk and so i think that you know if we can design a system to where you can access it and afford it within a, a means for everyone or for most people um, then I think we've done our we've done a better job than we did before. That's what's important to me. Absolutely agree. It's almost like in your experience with your your friend in Texas, we've heard it. That's like having a physician in the family to, to mm-hmm. be able to have that kind of of access and expertise at your fingertips. Uh, we know not everyone can have a physician in the family or a, a good friend that's a physician on speed dial, but um, the closest we can come is to enhance and and, and restore. Uh, the ability for individuals to have that sort of relationship with a primary care doctor so they can, uh, the minute that your friend is feeling ill, uh, get a, a physician's advice and expertise. That's fantastic. Bear with us, Healthcare Americana. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from our sponsors and we're going to talk some more with Dr. Shaw. Stay tuned. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. 
Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana. One uh, last point in this in this segment, Dr. Shaw. Um, we've talked about how our system today, uh, healthcare system today, is far too slow to embrace innovation or even allow innovation um, really into the into the arena, uh, like telehealth, and how it's unfortunately taken this global pandemic to really break some of those barriers and and see the rapid adoption of a, a much needed technology like that. Um, we've also talked about the notion that that improving access while maintaining a high level of quality um, implies both the ability for patients in need of care to connect with physicians as well as the ability for them to afford those services. One thing in particular, uh, and you mentioned this a bit in their earlier segment, um, one thing holding back the, the improvement within healthcare today is the lack of transparency. And again, I will relate that initially to uh, a financial sense that pricing in healthcare is, is murky at best and often unknowable by either those consuming or those delivering the care. But uh, certainly this has been in the news. There have been uh, some policy changes to try to affect transparency. I know in your work uh, around designing or, or, or calculating uh, actual uh, you know, the cost to deliver care and the value inherent in that cost, which by the way, as an aside, I'd love to have you back on the show sometime and really dive into that. It is a complete episode on its own two legs. But in your work in that, in that arena, can you describe the impact or, or the potential impact of enhancing transparency within healthcare and what we might, what we might see come of that? Certainly. I think, uh, first off, I'd love to come back and have a, an entire conversation around transparency and how we can really use transparency as a tool to really lower total cost of care, improve outcomes, deliver more value, but also just really align, goes back to something we mentioned earlier, really align those incentives. Because once you get to see the whole, all the chess pieces on the board, you get to move and play a better game and you you get to work with your other tools and capabilities to really deliver and maximize the amount of value that you can deliver uh, whether you're a health system or whether you're a uh, a payer that is is in charge and tasked with sort of the payments of, of care and and um, working with your employer to to create and, and have the most productive workforce uh, and employees as possible. Um, so I look forward to that uh, time with you. Um, but I think that with increased transparency and there's been some progress, I've been pleased with some of the progress around, you know, hospitals required to share their pricing um, with and some of the contracting uh, with with the um, the public, but I think that the opaqueness remains, and it's not it it doesn't get really at the heart of of understanding for particularly health systems, but also uh, funders of care, so governments and employers, 
the true cost of delivering that care. And that's, so that could be, you know, when you have uh, arthritis of the knee or hip, being able to end to end from initial diagnosis to recovery, um, understanding that total cost of care. And that, that hasn't happened because there wasn't an incentive to really understand it uh, in, the, in the first place. And because of many forces in healthcare delivery, some healthcare providers, particularly the integrated ones, so the Kaisers, the Geisingers of the, of the U.S., are trying to understand their underlying cost of care so then they can create some value-based contracts with employers and or with uh, some of the insurance companies, but also it provides a level of security and aligns the incentives with the consumer. So you know that sort of this end-to-end care would be delivered and the provider is incentivized to then you know, do things in an effective and efficient manner. And they're not driven by this fee-for-service model, which uh, is not aligned with overall health. And we saw the effects of that with COVID, right? We had a cancellation of elected procedures. And because of that high margin revenue generating line of business for the health system, sort of take a back seat for 60 to 90 days, it affected the bottom line of the entire, for the entire health system for the rest of the year, if not into 2021. And so you saw layoffs and furloughs, you saw uh, closing down of facilities. And that is because we've been incentivizing care delivery from a volume basis that didn't require a lot of transparency to the consumer and, and sort of create some misalignment in, in care. And I think that by taking more steps to understanding actual resource use, creating a system to make things more efficient and effective, and utilizing, this gives us an opportunity to really utilize some of the best technologies that are out there both to collect the information so that we do understand our, our outcomes better, incorporate patient report outcomes, and understand total cost of care so that the end goal will be care that is more affordable and accessible by everyone. It's shocking to hear you say that until recently, the notion of trying to discover that uh, the, the cost makeup or the, the cost composition of the care delivered was not a priority. As, as someone, and I know you've spent time in the, in, in the financial sector and myself in the business world, that would seem like job number 1A when, when you first start. But uh, I, I, I get it. I mean, I, I understand that what you're describing harkens back to the beginning of our conversation today when people respond to incentives and we have a sick care system rather than a health care system, then that's what uh, people produce. That's where they, they devote their energy. So we, we have uh, much energy expended to the types of things that are in revenue for the, the systems, the, the hospital systems, and, and that's, that's economics. But last question, do you, do you feel that the drive for greater transparency and perhaps some of these, these groups – don't know those numbers, but when, if and when they do get a good handle on those numbers from your work, do you see any downside to their revelation of those numbers? I don't, I don't think anyone would expect a health system to operate at a loss. Certainly, it would have to shut its doors. But is there 
Is there something else that is really driving resistance to that sort of transparency? Yeah, there, there can be, and there, there has been. And I think oftentimes by creating this level of resistance or by stating that it's too complex and opaque, it really allows you to sort of not have to be innovative or not have to seek out some of the better digital and technological solutions that are out there. You know, it lets you kind of continue to operate at a not as efficient, not as effective way because it's easier, right? It's, it's easier to not have to change. And some of these health systems are, are very, very large and take care of a large swaths of our population. And so it's easier for them to just kind of find little tweaks here and there to not have to understand their underlying resource utilization and cost structure and find other ways, whether it's administrative or otherwise, to kind of improve their bottom line. And because of this surge in consumer-driven care, alternatives to the legacy care with whether it's digital health, whether it's more retail clinics that you're seeing emerge with in CVS as well as now Walgreens with Village MD, you're seeing a takeaway in market share from where people are going to seek services. And I think that's forcing a little bit of these health systems and uh, health executives to say, okay, well, we actually need to understand where all our dollars are going and do we need to change the way we, we do business because it's not sustainable the way we have done. And I think that by having increased competition from these entities, but also these alternative entities are also understanding the consumer as to how they want and seek care by making it more in convenient locations that are closer to home. Uh, and, and essentially, they're taking the approach of rather than we as a consumer, as a person having to fit into the healthcare system, you know, when is the physician available? When is the hospital appointment available? Instead, it's being flipped, right? We're seeing care now trying to be convenient, accessible, and affordable into and fitting into our lives, our daily routines, and that way it meets our needs better as a consumer. And, and that is moving in the right direction. And with that will come increased transparency you know, uh, around what am I getting for the service that I am seeking, um, but also more transparency allows the consumer to make more informed decision as to where, where, and how should they seek the services that they need? And I think that is a great thing in, in healthcare, right? If you look at the finance sector, where both of us have had experience, we don't go to the bank anymore to deposit checks, or at least the vast majority of us, right? We get a physical check these days. We can simply take a picture with our phone, uh, and within a couple of minutes, that fund, those funds are deposited into the account and in a few days it sort of gets shows up on the balance um, fully and that is you know meeting us where we're at in our lives right and we spend 98 percent of our our year uh, away from the quote-unquote formal healthcare system out of the hospital in our communities and and so i think that the healthcare sector and stakeholders are doing a better job or trying to do a better job of understanding where where we are, what we do with those uh, that 98%, and what health information can we glean from that? Uh, that way, it will inform any of our uh, our health 
when we do interact and take that 2% of our year to interact with the health system. It's a better designed healthcare system. It provides a better experience. And frankly, I think with a better design and a better experience, that equals better medicine in my book. It's incredible that we might have to have you back for a third show now because I've made <laughs> notes as you were describing this. To, to paraphrase this last segment, and tell me if I'm wrong, but the resistance to transparency, whether it's pricing or whether it's value delivery, has insulated these inherent inefficiencies within uh, the groups that deliver healthcare uh, hospitals. That insulation has then uh, afforded them the ability to avoid innovating and to resist these types of innovations encroaching uh, like they have in other industries, as you mentioned, finance and banking. Fascinating. Uh, th- this is, unfortunately, we're going to run out of time. I, I would love to have you back. Uh, like unpack that a little more. Certainly get into your work understanding uh, value-based care and the actual cost of care delivery. Uh, that is fascinating in itself. And, and also your global perspective. I know that that you um, uh, have great perspective of, of healthcare and and there's always something we can learn from, from the way other countries do it. And I know that we tend to focus on our nearest neighbors in terms of Canada or the UK, but I think there's great innovation that occurs in places like Germany and Singapore and all over the world that, that certainly we can learn from. So I'd love to have you back. I know Healthcare Americana listeners are, are, are going to enjoy this episode and probably hungry for more. So uh, Dr. Mahekshaw, I thank you for joining us today on Healthcare Americana and I uh, look forward to the next round. Adam, it's been a real pleasure. Uh speaking with you today and and enjoyed uh, discussing where healthcare is currently, how it's been exposed through COVID and and the transformations that are occurring and ongoing. And I think that will continue and the acceleration of innovation and technology into the system uh, really makes me excited every day to do the transformative work that, that I'm doing and that I do with colleagues and look forward to the next time we connect and talk. We appreciate your work. We'll, be, we'll do it soon. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. We'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.